This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on streaming services or video on demand and compare and contrast it to older films from the same filmmaker, genre, or other cinematic connective tissue. On today's episode, we are looking at the work of Dutch filmmaker Paul Verhoeven, who took Hollywood by storm in the 1980s and 1990s. He's a provocateur. He go, His work goes back to the 1970s, and he walks that line between exploitation and satire, humor and violence. We're going to talk about the three chapters of his career, his early work in the Netherlands, his Hollywood blockbusters, and his return to Europe. That's coming up on today's Lends Me Your Ears. Hi, and welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, and I'm Stephen Cook, multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network. And I'm Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I've got a blog called Flaw on the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're taking a look at the uh, the long 40-year career, well, longer than that, actually, career of uh, Dutch-born cinema provocateur, enfant terrible, whatever you want to call him, Paul Verhoeven, uh, prankster, uh, <laughs> certainly uh, sometimes likes to pull the wool over the uh, moviegoer's eyes and uh, is never boring, that's for sure. And uh, we watched a pile of his films uh, going back to his earliest days uh, in the early 70s, although he was making films you know, for TV and for the army before that, uh, an interesting career. And, uh, you know, uh, basically got his start uh, tackling some very successful, uh, but also very uh, controversial Dutch novels and, and books and, and put his mark on the industry uh, almost as soon as he started making features. Yeah, he is someone who I first came to know through his Hollywood films, RoboCop, uh, Total Recall, certainly Basic Instinct. Those films, uh, some of which have aged better than others, uh, we'll be touching on those. But for, for us, I think it, this was a chance to see the things we hadn't seen, the ones we didn't know as well. And to start with, we watched his brand new film available on video on demand called Benedetta. Uh, and it is uh, based on a book, Immodest Acts, The Life of a Lesbian Nun in Renaissance Italy by Judith C. Brown. Uh, yeah, so this is, uh, you know, the kind of material you'd expect him to tackle, really. It's a period drama. Uh, it's it's certainly comedic in places. It's got all the lurid excess you'd expect from from Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a throwback to his earlier historical dramas. Uh, uh, some we're going to talk about later in the show, Flesh and Blood Comes to Mind, and, and uh, even some of his wartime dramas, where he, he, he really kind of wants to dig into life as it might have been uh, back then. Although it's, of course, Benedetta walks a weird line between trying to portray, you know, Renaissance life, medieval life, uh, as as it might have been, and and in a time of plague, and but also with some modern touches. So he, you know, he's he's not giving us a strict uh, version of history necessarily, but he does have a story he wants to tell about religion, uh, which he has some very definite ideas about, and and uh, the patriarchy, and um, you know, a rare opportunities for for women to have power in whatever you know, whatever setting they find themselves in, you know, many centuries ago. Oh yeah, yeah, and I, you know, it's funny in some ways this. 
this does, as I mentioned, it does feel like something that's right in his wheelhouse, but it's actually kind of more tamer than some of his earlier work. I mean, he's in his 80s now, so maybe that's to be expected, but at the same time, it does sort of dig in the same kind of, you know, it's there. He's, he's trying to shock us, and he's trying to amuse us. And uh, um, anyway, so the crux of the film is that uh, it's apparently based in truth, this story, about a 17th century girl brought to a convent at a Tuscan town to be raised as a nun. The only way she'll be accepted in this house of God is if she play, her father pays a dowry to the church. Uh, co- you know, So the comment on commerce and the hypocrisy of the papacy is evident there from the start. She's barely been there a few hours, and a, a bare-breasted sculpture of the Virgin Mary falls on her, prompting the girl to, to you know, touch the sculpture. Uh, we sort of know where this is going. Then we fast-forward 20 years, and Benedetta is played by Virginia Ephira, and she's still God-fearing under the watchful eye of the abbess, played by the wonderful Charlotte Rampling, uh, and her daughter, also a nun, Sister Christina, played by Louise Chevillot. Uh, and so Benedetta starts having visions of Christ the shepherd and, and as a knight with a bloody sword up on the cross, and, and these visions, of course, capture the imagination of the of the other nuns and, and the townsfolk as well. And people, of course, wondering, are her visions authentic, or is she a charlatan? But Benedetta plays it entirely straight, even when there's plenty of evidence she's conning everyone around her. It's possible she's just insane. Uh, but, uh, of course, the church isn't opposed to the spectacle and the attention that this brings them. Uh, so, yeah, and then and then a, a, a young woman, played by uh, Daphne Patakia, arrives, and she's trying to escape her abusive father, and she becomes a novitiate and expresses a carnal interest in Benedetta, and then that's where the, as this film has been called, the lesbian nun movie, that's where that all starts to happen. Uh, you know, there is a lot of... Um, I would say male gaze going on here, which uh, which is something we talk about a lot. Certainly, Verhoeven has been guilty of that in the past. But uh, you know, there's none of the class or sensitivity of a genuinely queer perspective, like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, in terms of a of a film set in the past that, that explores um, same sex love and relationships. Um, but it does offer a lot of camp. And, uh, and, you know, and melodrama. I mean, you know, there's, there's humor, there's gratuitous nudity, there's a lot of gore and vivid plague symptoms when the plague becomes an issue. That's also connects it to f- flesh and blood. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I found, as you said, he, it's entertaining, it's not boring, and uh, it really does take some shots at organized religion and gender roles and even suggests a trans... Uh, you know, Lord, which is something I don't know that I have ever seen. And and maybe I'm just not watching the right movies. <laughs> well, it, it, it definitely fulfills his uh, desire to combine high art and low trash uh, in, in a way that maybe makes him the European John Waters, perhaps. Uh, you know, that, that seems to be the closest analogy I can come up with in terms of other filmmakers. And uh, it, it just uh, it seems like he found a story that pushes all his buttons. Uh, he, I don't know how uh, Judith Brown felt about the adaptation, but he's working with uh, David Burke, who uh, wrote the screenplay for Elle, uh, which we'll talk about uh, shortly, which was a, a big triumph for him and, uh, and possibly his best film ever. And uh, also uh, Gerald Soderman, who was his early uh, Dutch uh, collaborator, uh, had some involvement with this film as well. But um it's uh, it it is an interesting perspective on this time period of what women had to go through at this time. It's definitely going to remind you of films like The Devils, the Ken Russell film from the '70s, that is very similar in terms of setting and 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 theme in terms of uh, 
uh, religious ecstasy meets carnal ecstasy. And, and uh, the, of course, there was a string of, of films made around that time in the early 70s called Nunsploitation of, uh, of films that kind of exploited the convent setting for, for prurient reasons. Uh, Nunsploitation? Nunsploitation? How have I not, did not know about this? There's a, a, <laughs> the one, I mean, there's one film that comes to mind called The Sinful Nuns of St. Valentine, and, but, but there's a whole bunch of them. Just because, uh, you know, it was sort of like a taboo that just hadn't been crossed up to that point to that degree because, of course, there was more liberation in the 70s and the, the Catholic Church's grip on popular culture had certainly loosened a lot thanks to the 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 60s and then uh the the sexual revolution and and all that so you know that just seemed like an easy road for exploitation filmmakers to take and and uh and you know get people into theaters to see things that would not have been permissible a decade before so uh and 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 this this i mean this film knowingly winks and nods at at those kinds of films as well so that's why we there's that you know, thread of exploitation that runs through uh, the more serious subject matter. But it, it, it's, uh, you know, Verhoeven's sort of lust for life, uh, which, you know, comes out literally when he uses that song in a couple of his films, the Iggy Pop number that a lot of people probably think of Trainspotting, but he he used it uh, used it before that. But, but he just has that kind of gung-ho approach to the subject matter that I think is his overriding instinct. It's just this uh, overwhelming enthusiasm for tearing the lid off things yeah and it's also gotten him into trouble many times oh, yeah. i mean he's been accused of of misogyny and uh and homophobia and any all sorts of things through his his career certainly you know the gratuity of nudity is just not something we're used to and in the film like this like benedetta it's like there's we're just it's it's been a while since we've seen like an art house movie that really tries to push those buttons and uh, and and that's what made it seem so refreshing in some ways to me uh, as as a film goer and um, it's just there isn't anybody you know he's kind of carved his own niche in a way and uh, and I I do appreciate even while I have trouble with some of the things that he does I do appreciate his his vision and his vision was in serious uh you know it was it was firing at all cylinders for l in 2016 which uh is a film that is available all over uh, social it's all over uh, streaming services uh i think amazon prime has it and uh, if not uh, canopy certainly does um and this is i think in a way it it sort of revived his reputation in some ways, because he had been kind of out in the in the wilderness for a while, he had he kind of crashed out of Hollywood when his films didn't do very well, and he had taken had enough of it. Maybe um, he went back to Europe. He had done Black Book, which we'll talk about shortly. But um, this L was was earned his actor Isabel Huppert uh, Best Actress nomination at the Oscars, uh, an award. I think. I mean, I like Emma Stone as much as the next person, but I think Huppert was incredible in this film, and she carries it. She is just like it's it's a fantastic performance um and this is verhoven's first film in french and uh it is about a a businesswoman a canny businesswoman in paris the film opens with the immediate aftermath of her having been raped in her apartment by a masked man she cleans up the mess she has a bath and welcomes her adult son for a visit she says nothing about what's happened uh, and then she gets the locks changed. She doesn't go to the police because she has good reason not to trust them and instead starts her own investigation as to who this man was, all while she maintains a civil relationship with her ex-husband. She has a sort of domineering one with her, her adult son and a bitter one with her free-spirited mother. 
and actually has a sexual one with the husband of her best friend. So she has a very busy and complicated life. And she's running a video game company, which I thought was a, a nice touch. Yeah, um, yeah, a, a company that that has a has a um, that tends to make violent and sometimes sexually kind of provocative imagery in in the material that they that they create. So yeah, it's there's a lot of um, of stuff going on here, uh, and I just found it so effective. Mostly again, thanks to who. Bear and her, you know, she's an actor who is associated with sort of a towering amount of courage in, in, in the film roles she takes. She's not afraid of doing a lot of things that you don't see uh, actors choosing to do in films very often. And she is extraordinary here. Yeah, it, it's funny. I read that Verhoeven had considered making this in the States uh, with, with, you know, with English speaking actors. And, and then, but just, uh, I, I guess he just, uh, most of his investment was happening in Europe. And uh, he just didn't feel that an American cast would necessarily be able to get to the nitty gritty of the story and and some of some of the nastier edges of it uh, may not have been as uh, as doable in English, I guess that it that it makes more sense as a French film. and I, I think maybe it does when you consider how French films uh, have tackled more serious and more adult subject matter. I think he made the right choice. Um, I, th- I think it's based on a French novel, so 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 maybe it was a, a fait accompli in, uh, in terms of making it over there. But I, from what I've read, there were talk, there was talk of doing it in English, and I, I think uh, here it just um, I don't know. It, it just uh, allows for a certain reality. Uh, certainly, uh, if it had been made in English, they wouldn't have starred a an actor, a woman who's 63 years old in the in the main role and Isabel Hubert is is uh, is a tour de force here and, and and playing a character that I guess even she said was a bit out of her comfort zone but she's fantastic uh, playing a, a woman who's not entirely likable and and but has some very complex reasons as to why that is the case so uh you know it, it's it's such a wonderfully formed and and multi-layered uh, performance and character oh absolutely you know and, and in terms of the targets of of uh, his satire or his uh, his sharp uh, you know uh exploitation edged uh, dramatic uh plot and uh, i think he's really saying some things about the patriarchy in french society and how men have certain uh, advantages uh in the way they get to operate and i think that's largely what l is about um there are things that will make you you know make you go hmm it's one of those films i think really uh welcomes uh conversation afterwards and you know more than maybe some of his other other work and i i found it all just so effective um and uh and yes i'm i'm glad to see that uh that that was he was able to accomplish this because I think I think uh, I think it's I think a lot of the criticism on Verhoeven ha- has been fair over the years and uh, and this is one where his that balance between a kind of exploitative drama uh, and satire it all just balance it all just works it works really well and uh, it's it's hard to watch in places but it's it's very well done now before L he made like this little like, experimental project which i haven't watched but i think steven you saw it yeah i did and it's on canopy uh what do you want to say about about tricked yeah it was basically his uh return to uh, the netherlands to work on a project where the script was going to be crowdsourced so basically essentially a, a scenario was laid out with about the first four pages of a script and then people were invited to read those and then 
contribute their continuation of this story where a, a businessman is uh, who's, he's just turning 50 and he's got a successful company, or at least he thinks he's got a successful company and he's having a celebration. Um, they've got a big contract in Dubai. So, um, you know, everything seems to be going swimmingly. You know, he's got a lovely family, a, a beautiful wife, and then you know, two grown children. And then this, uh, this woman walks into the party, a coworker who has been in Japan ostensibly for the last, however many months, and she's pregnant. And that was the setup. And that, and, and, uh, you know, the question is, who's the father? Is it, is it the husband? Uh, what kind of ramifications are this going to have? How is his wife going to react? You know, what about the kids? And, 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 and then it develops that, you know, he's having an affair with his daughter's best friend and, you know, he's a bit of a philanderer and, his wife, uh, she's a bit of an enigma as to, you know, how she takes uh, her husband's behavior. It's kind of a sort of a romantic comedy or an anti-romantic comedy, perhaps, given how the, the husband behaves. Basically, what you get is a half-hour documentary explaining this experiment, and then you get this, this hour-long family drama that comes after. And it's uh, I saw it on Canopy, I think, is where I found it, which you can get for free through your library. And it was it was most amusing. You know, the, the, a lot of the actors are, are students, a lot of the younger characters, um, who, who probably haven't had a lot of on-screen experience, but they're very good in, in their roles as the, the daughter and the mistress and and so on. And uh, it's, you know, mostly played for laughs. It's not as intense as some of those other things. And, and the story is remarkably coherent, considering I think they had something like 700 submissions <laughs> of scripts from people who were hoping to have their say in how this story went. And uh, def- definitely worth a look. If, if uh, It's only about 90 minutes long, and, and you get to see Verhoeven at work and, you know, at, at times it seems like this project is going a bit off the rails because it is so improvisational in, in a way, you know, where they're filming a story that they don't really know how it's going to end. And but it all comes together rather well and uh, and is, a, is kind of an interesting outlier in his filmography. Now, before Tricked, uh, the film that we watched, all we both watched, was Black Book from 2006. This was his first film back in Europe after many years in Hollywood. It's a Dutch wartime thriller. And uh, it's funny, the first 20 minutes feel like a very conventional World War II drama, but right at the 20-minute mark, a group of refugees trying to escape the occupied part of the Netherlands uh, are gunned down on a ship, and we get a lot of, we get some gratuitous nudity of a dead body, and all of a sudden we know who's behind this movie. Uh, it's a story of a Jewish-Dutch woman, Rachel, played by Carice Van Houten. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, uh, my apologies, um, who I know best from her having played Melisandre, the Red Witch, on Game of Thrones. Uh, now, she joins a resistance group to fight Nazis in Holland in 1944. She's a terrific character, entirely confident and cool as a cucumber. We also find out uh, early on that she used to be a singer, and that, of course, plays a role later on. Now, mostly, I mentioned the opening 20 minutes being kind of conventional. It is sometimes hard to believe this picture is from 2006, because aside from the nudity and some scenes of violence that are are intense, uh, it's a very much a traditional wartime thriller from the past, though it moves at a remarkable clip. It wastes no time. Rachel is in the water escaping the Nazis, and the next moment she's rescued and meeting up with resistance contacts, dyeing her hair, and helping move radio equipment across the country to bug the the SS. Now, speaking of Verhoeven's gratuity, there's also a scene where we get to see her dye her pubic hair, which, uh, while one of the resistance men is just loitering around, it's almost hilarious how unlikely (laughs) that would be. But it does remind one of a key scene from Basic Instinct, which, you know, again, we are seeing with Verhoeven certain tropes play 
again and again. Um, and eventually she connects with the head of the SS in the in the area played by Sebastian Koch. Uh, and she infiltrates his office. At one point, she says to him as they're kind of, you know, seducing one another, she says, I'd love to see your stamp collection. And he responds with, it's enormous. <laughs> so you know what you're dealing with here. Um, it's, of course, the the transgressive nature of this Jewish Dutch spy having this affair with an SS commander uh, and 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 decide and, and she's kind of of the thought that he isn't as bad as a lot of the other Nazis but of course you know we'll he's see. still a Nazi he's still a Nazi yeah exactly so you know there is a scene uh, where she disrobes in front of the SS officer and it appears he's getting aroused beneath the sheets but when she pulls the sheet away he's got a pistol uh yeah it is it's wildly entertaining I won't deny it uh Black Book is very much worth seeing uh it's a bit long there's about three false endings in the final reel where I was like the double and triple crossings I was getting I was losing track of but overall I I thought Black Book was really worth seeing yeah it 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 is kind of an old-fashioned story a Matahari kind of story if you will uh, and I think there's references made to Matahari over the course of the movie just to drive the point home. But uh, but very kind of a splashy historical epic drama that has its roots in a, another sort of Dutch uh, Second World War resistance movie, Soldier of Orange, that uh, Verhoeven made in the in the 70s. And from what I gather, he, he and uh, Gerard Soderman, uh, his uh, usual screenwriting partner from his old days, uh, concocted this story and meant it to be part of that film but just uh, ran out of room <laughs> ran out of story room in soldier of orange so put it on the back burner and got to make it as black book uh you know uh 30 years later so uh i'm glad they hung on to it it's it's uh the, the, there's some real tension in some of the uh situations that uh carissa's character uh, falls into rachel stein and uh there's some really memorable characters among both the the goodies and the baddies uh and, and of course there's also that ongoing you know who's good and who's bad and who's playing both sides of the fence kind of thing that runs throughout the film that also keeps it highly uh, highly entertaining <laughs> You're listening to Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast. Today, Stephen and I are talking about the work of Paul Verhoeven. And in this segment, we're going to go back to his early work in the Netherlands in the 1970s and early 1980s before he went to Hollywood, starting with a film that I didn't get to see. But Stephen, you've seen it. It's called, well, it's called Many Things. It's from 1971. (laughs) It's his first feature, uh, Any Special Way. It's also known as Business is Business and at least a couple of other titles. Yeah, Diary of a Hooker. I think was its release to Grindhouse Cinemas, probably around the world, uh, was was one of the titles. Uh, also, the, the original Dutch title, I think, is, um, let me see, I've got my DVD of it here. It was Was Seek Eek. Eek. Um, what's all this, basically, or what's going on? What's this? What's happening? Um, and... Uh, it's you know it's it's a he'd already been making some films for television at this point so this is you know he's not a stranger to filmmaking at this point but uh, it is his first theatrical feature and it was a huge hit at the time it came out people were lining up around the blocks because it was based on a book about uh, prostitution in in the Netherlands which uh, it was legal um, 
you know, the the Amsterdam Red Light District uh, was pretty famous even then, back in the early 70s. Uh, I had a brief glimpse of it as a 13-year-old in 1980 before I was quickly steered away from uh, from that neighborhood while we were wandering around Amsterdam with uh, my parents and my grandfather. Uh, and uh, this, is a, this is kind of a, 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 I don't even want to call it a sexual romp because the sex isn't really the, the, the main point of the film, but it's, it's about two prostitutes in Amsterdam set in then current uh, time in 1971. And uh, Ronnie Bierman plays a blonde Greet and uh, Sylvia Delure plays Nell Mueller. And uh, basically they, uh, they're, they've got their own apartments uh, in Amsterdam. They're not even really sort of red light district uh, prostitutes, but they, um, you know, they, they have their own specialties. Uh, uh, Nell is, tends to have older sort of older gentleman type clients and, and, uh, blonde has, um, most of her clients are fetish type clients, like guys who want to be humiliated. And, you know, one, one guy dresses up like a maid and cleans her apartment while she beats him with a carpet beater and, and, that, and that kind of thing. So, uh, and unfortunately Nell has a, a boyfriend slash pimp named, uh, Siak, um, who is a, a real creep and a problem that, uh, as the film progresses, needs to be dealt with and, and is uh, sort of comedically towards the end of the film, although um, uh, his, you know, he is a real threat and, and, and truly violent uh, in a way that is probably the, the most serious thing in the film. But it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting character portrait, portrait of, the, of these two women and how they go about their business. And it's, it's, it's a very kind of sex positive film. It's not judgmental of what, who they are, what they do, and uh, and very enjoyable performances from the two women who uh, play the leads. It's not easy to find. I have an old Anchor Bay DVD from 2000 that I got in a bargain bin at Zellers. So <laughs> I don't. There obviously there are no Zellers and very few DVD bargain bins left around. But you might find it by poking around. It might be online somewhere. I didn't find it there, but uh, but uh, an early, uh, an interesting early start to his career for sure. Yeah, his films from this period aren't easy to find, but we were able to track down Turkish Delight light from 1973 now in the opening five minutes of this film uh ritger hauer who is his frequent collaborator kills two people in a car he bludgeons one to death and he shoots the other one in the face then he then hauer is lying naked on a bed in a grotty sort of studio full frontal nudity imagining two other people he's killed by strangulation and before long he's masturbating to an image on his wall and a few minutes later he picks up a woman on the street he has sex with her then he kicks her out all of this happening in the first five or ten minutes of film so you know he's clearly trying to provoke with a lot of this sort of this kind of uh, you know, upfront sexual content and violence. Um, anyway, it turns out that Howard play, is playing a sculptor and his visions of murder are probably just dreams or fantasies. He's living in the aftermath of a love affair and a marriage that went awry with uh, uh, with an actor, uh, well, with the character played by Monique Van de Ven. Uh, we get the whole connection. She picks him up as a hitchhiker. They fall in love, lots of sex and nudity, a bit of humor. And then, uh, you know, we get this scene where Howard's character, after having sex in the car, uh, gets his tackle stuck in his zipper. <laughs> like, this is the level of, of some of this stuff. It's almost a Benny Hill-esque kind of, uh, you know, a slapstick uh, with a heavy sexual content. Uh, you know, it's sex-obsessed. Uh, it's funny. There's lots of handheld camera in this one, which I generally find a little bit annoying, to be honest. But tonally, I was... Uh, reminded weirdly of another film that's recently opened. Uh, Joaquin Trier's The Worst 
person in the world, which starts as a romantic comedy, then gets very sad towards the end and becomes kind of tragic. The the sort of tonal arc of Turkish Delight is very similar. Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of moments in the film I enjoy just because of its raw kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's sexy in some places, in some places just ridiculous. Yeah, it, it's it's all over the map, but uh, certainly the, the charisma of Rutger Hauer and Monique van de Ven uh, cannot be denied. And that's really what, what this film is is fueled by, is, is how charming they are, even when they're fighting and, and being obnoxious and, you know, playing pranks on people and throwing food and being, being, uh, yeah. And I, I don't know if that's like his idea of what the younger generation is like, or, you know, just, uh, taking advantage of, 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 uh, relaxed, uh, restrictions on films in Europe and the sexual revolution and so on. Uh, you know, I think he's taking full advantage of, of, uh, of what he can do in a movie and just kind of pushing the limits. There's a lot of sort of bodily function stuff as well going on, which is another trend that you see throughout his films. Uh, and it was a massive hit. It was the most successful Dutch film, uh, maybe uh, certainly up to that point and uh, was, I don't know if it was an international art house hit, but um, it was it was certainly something that uh, you know made him a, a name as someone who was adapting these controversial novels. This one's based on a novel, sort of a romantic cleft by uh, uh, Jan Volkers, um, which is sort of based on his own life. And then Verhoeven found out some personal information about the author and made it even more true to his life, which the author was not thrilled about, uh, and called it a seventy-five percent masterpiece. Um, but but uh, so so he had I don't know if there's some bitter feelings there, but it, it's it's an interesting portrayal of an artist as a, as a kind of a selfish, greedy, and sex obsessed maniac, and um, not for all tastes, but a, a certainly an interesting snapshot of its time. Yeah. Now. Uh he went on to make a period drama, which we weren't able to get our hands on, Katie Tipple from 1975, a film I'd, I'd like to see, but uh, but weren't able to find. However, we were able to find Soldier of Orange from 1977. You mentioned it earlier, uh, as it is definitely feels connected to Black Book from 2006. And um, it stars Rutger Hauer again and uh, Jerome Crabbe as privileged Dutch students in the late 30s who become friends before the war following kind of a horrible initiation ceremony for students in this in this place anyway um the you know uh the narrative style here is always forward moving as per all of verhoven's films um we get this collection of young men who are friends we follow them through the efforts to fight the nazis sometimes they don't do well like when they actually accidentally blow up a beach hut full of gasoline due to a poorly thrown match um and we get the struggle between the average Dutch citizen and the resistance and the fact that even some of the resistant members were bigoted against the Jewish populations and some weren't. Uh, we see how our character make it to England to become an important figure to the Dutch queen in exile. There's some really good scenes there. But mostly this is a story of brotherhood. I, I found it a little too long and I missed that feminine presence that makes Black Book so special. Most of the women here, with the exception of the queen, are kind of window dressing. Um, but it is, it is a you know, a well-acted and well-made uh, World War II drama. And um, yeah, it has, at one moment, has a very weird Jaws-like theme in the music. Did you notice that? Almost like a John Williams kind of quality to one of the themes, uh, where I was like, is this, is he really ripping off Jaws, or is this, is this on purpose, or is this just for fun? What's going on? Anyway, yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, that's Soldier of Orange. 
Yeah, it, it's uh, you know I, I love a good resistance story, and uh, you know, we had one with Black Books and or Black Book rather, and uh, this one uh, cer- certainly uh, very similar. I can see how the one film came out of the er- earlier film, and again, Howard extremely charismatic. It's not hard to see how he became a bigger star uh, not too long after this film, and uh, you know it, it's it's kind of unblinking in its portrayal of of war and and the lines that were drawn across Holland because uh, some Dutch citizens sided with the Nazis. Some of them became fascists and actually fought for the Germans. And, and um, you know, the, this film acknowledges that fact. And uh, one of the characters says, well, unfortunately, there, there are no friendships in a time of war. And one of their classmates, uh, you know, becomes a becomes a soldier for the Germans. And it's, you know, there's some real uh, some real uh, consequences of, of, of these actions. And, and uh, you know, just a portraying what a nightmarish time it must have been to, to be living there under German occupation. And it's, uh, I think that's part of the reason for its kind of epic length is because it's trying to do a lot of things at once um, rather than the kind of more straightforward kind of we're on a mission to, you know, blow up the headquarters or whatever. There's a, there's a lot more going on. It even has an intermission, which, right. uh, you know, was something that you probably weren't seeing a lot of films by, by this point, but, uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, meant to be a real epic, probably the most expensive Dutch film made up to that time. And, uh, it did very well too, though, didn't it? Yeah, it was, it was another film that, uh, that got a lot of attention. Yeah. All right. Very good. Um, so he went on to make a film called Spetters from 1980 about working class sort of characters who love dirt biking. Apparently, this is this film is unseen by me, but um, we did find uh, the Fourth Man from 1984, where uh, Verhoeven leaps into the 1980s uh, with this film. Another success. His last film uh, in. Um, in the Netherlands, uh, in Dutch, uh, I think, before he would start making films in English and move to Hollywood. The Fourth Man stars Jerome Crabbe, again, um, once on another one of his his regular uh, uh, collaborators on film. And uh, he, he once again has his uh, male lead show off his penis in the opening scenes, <laughs> as he did with Ritger Hauer in Turkish Delight. It's an interesting sort of... It is. I mean, I, I mention it just because it seems so rare, right? We we don't see that happening in Hollywood almost ever, unless you're maybe Adam Driver. Like you just the the guys guys in Hollywood don't tend to to be tackle out very often. Yeah, Terry Gar joked on Letterman once that uh, what do the ladies get? Richard Gere's penis through a dense fog. That's the most you can hope for. Kind of, <laughs> about, you know, the sort of gratuitous nudity and why there's so little of it involving involving men. But Verhoeven is an equal opportunity. Uh, nudist. I yes, guess. yes. And you know, it says something about uh, if you want to create a male character that it feels that provide instant sort of vulnerability in a way. It's like just because it's so rare, it seems to me like, oh man, like we're seeing all of him, you know, we're seeing him in, at his best and his worst, um, maybe. Uh, so he, Crabbe is a novelist, Gerard. He's an alcoholic, he's bisexual. He's invited to speak in an event outside of Amsterdam where he lives. He meets a woman there played by Renee Sutton. Dyke, who with whom he has sex, but later discovers she has another lover, Herman, who he's attracted to. So he tries to use her to get to this other guy uh, who he'd seen earlier in a train station. Um, and later he discovers she has had three husbands who have all died. And he starts to wonder whether he or Herman might be the fourth man to die, hence the title. Um, I really I enjoyed the film. It's got a lot of sort of dreamlike moments, dream sequences. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of what Kubrick did with Eyes Wide 
shut, this lead character for whom lust is a big part of his motivation, but also an arrogance masking fear and a certain amount of cluelessness. You get a sense he's out of his depth with a woman who is far more sophisticated and wise and knowledgeable than he is. Uh, and then there's this element of Catholicism and the suggestion that she's maybe a witch, a black widow. Um, it's funny, in some ways, this film is about men's fear of women, the demonizing of women by the church. Um, it feels like it could be both a companion piece to in Basic Instinct and Benedetta. Um, yeah, so, and I really like the production design in The Fourth Man. It's about as 1980s as <laughs> Adrian Lyne or early, early Ridley Scott. There's a lot of curtains in the breeze and bright red latex and neon and shiny black tiles. It's all in the production design, which I always associate with that period of, of uh, 80s uh, film. Yeah, and it opens with like a Black Widow spider, you know, catching its prey and, and weaving a web on a on a crucifix. So it was, uh, you know, right, everything's right up front. And, and Verhoeven has said that uh, he, he purposefully overdid all the symbolism and stuff because because he, he, I guess Spetters was fairly criticized at home for for any number of reasons and he decided to to like really overplay his hand to kind of tease the uh the high-minded film critics and and he says they ate it up like you know like cream like they, they basically just you know fell for all the overdone uh, cinematics that he he says he did on purpose you know of course he's known to change his tune after films about what he intended to do um you know as as we'll see with showgirls but uh you know i, I could see him doing something like that to kind of thumb his nose at the at the kind of the the you know the uh elite film critics who are looking for all those multi-layers and that kind of stuff so he just kind of piled it on rather thick but you know as as far as thrillers go this is the film that this is the first film of his that i saw uh i think when i played at wormwoods um back in the 80s uh and uh it, it was it was certainly a film that that had an impact on on the kind of um art house um repertory circuit and uh and certainly enough to get him the attention of uh the big name uh, hollywood producers hi i'm lindsey cameron wilson host of the food podcast but do you know what it's not just about food it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears and a look at the work of Dutch-born filmmaker Paul Verhoeven, and uh, we're going to look at the a film that wasn't quite an American film, but wasn't quite a European film. It was shot in Spain on uh, locations that might seem familiar to fans of uh, spaghetti westerns, uh, and it's uh, the medieval plague drama Flesh and Blood, and it's uh, set in the what is it opens with credits to say it's what fifteen fifteen oh one fifteen oh one um and and basically we've got we've got a band of mercenaries that includes Rutger Hauer playing Martin and uh, they're uh, they're trying to take back uh, a city belonging to uh, some sort of feudal lord who's trying to get his his city back and uh, and uh, pass it along to his uh, his son Stephen which I, I uh, played by Australian actor Tom Berlinson I, I got to hear my name over and over and over again watching this film which is not usually a treat and um and basically what happens is the mercenaries get sold out once the city gets taken then um 
you know the guy who hired them goes back on his word and they're they're uh, the general they've been loyal to or the 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 officer uh, Hawkwood played by Jack Thompson has to make a a kind of a bitter choice to uh, to go with the guy who's paying him and uh, the mercenaries are kind of run out of town uh, on their heels and and um, they decide uh, they take Stephen's fiance Agnes played by Jennifer Jason Lee as a kind of retaliation and then there's this kind of battle of power between uh, the mercenaries led by Rutger Hauer and uh, the guy with all the money who hires a new batch to to get Agnes back for his son and and they've taken over kind of a, a large castle somewhere in the in the countryside in Spain although I, I don't know that the film actually says what what area of Europe that the story is taking place in so it's kind of left up in the air and with the international crew uh, or um, cast it's really hard to tell anyway because we've got we've got uh, we've got Dutch actors we've got German actors we've got American actors Australians uh, we've got some Brits uh, the uh, one of the mercenaries are accompanied by a guy named Cardinal played by Ronald Lacey who is the face melting Nazi from Raiders of the Lost Ark. yeah yeah funny to see him we see he turns out it's funny of the places that he turns up in um, and so what yeah we get this sort of bitter battle of wills between uh, forces that were nor initially allies. Um, uh, Verhoeven has said that uh, he wanted to make kind of a medieval version of the Wild Bunch, and that's essentially what we get, um, only even nastier with even more violence and more sex than uh, Sam, Peckham Sam Peckinpah could have dreamed of. So uh, it's uh, it wasn't a huge hit. I don't know how many theaters it played in. I think it really didn't find its audience until home video. Uh, and uh, it was sort of the film that convinced him that he really had to go to the States and, and work there uh, and get out of this European co-production, you know, multi-headed dragon kind of world that he was in at the moment. And it's uh, it's it's a pretty nasty piece of work. I, I, rem I haven't watched it in quite a long time, and it was every bit as, uh, you know, nasty about how people behaved and how brutish and short life was during uh, during medieval times and then this film doesn't stint on that yeah no i remember it from it was one of the first ones of his i'd seen and i saw it as a teenager and i thought it was pretty nasty then and it still is it, in, if anything it just seemed worse to me uh i i can't recommend it but uh you know we felt like we should try and watch as many of verhoven's films as we could uh it is good to see jennifer jason lee very young and very much in command in, in terms of her character i always liked her but she she often is been attracted to playing characters who are victimized by men and certainly that's the case here though she is she is fighting. Uh, she, I think the argument could be made that her character is fighting for control and dominance in her own way. Um, and we briefly see Nancy Cartwright, who uh, <laughs> later would play the voice of Bart Simpson, who is an interesting, and Bruno Kirby, Brian James. I mean, it is a strange cast of, of recognizable actors. Um, but yeah, I mean... Uh, yeah, as I said, I mean, I was interested. I'm interested in transgressive and provocative films. I was certainly as a teenager, but I struggled with this one. And it's, I mean, it made it made me think a little bit of Ridley Scott's recent film, The Last Duel, and not just because we get so many mullets. There's a there's a truly awful gang rape scene here where we're asked to think better of Martin, the uh, Rutger Hauer character, than the others because he seems like he doesn't like what's going on. But you know, really, they're all terrible people and. 
uh, and it's all just pretty terrible. And, and, you know, it's stupidly violent in places. Maybe, I think, argument to be made, it's pretty misogynistic. Um, I'm sure Verhoeven would probably say he's doing his best to depict the 16th century authentically, where women were expected to serve their men as their masters and had their tongues ripped out if they didn't do what they were told. Um, you know, and then there's the sense of superstition, the representative of the god stokes fear and loyalty in the soldiers. I feel like there was a rousing adventure film somewhere in here, but it's just all too ugly to enjoy, unfortunately. Yeah, and I, I think that was it. I think he just wanted to portray that period for all, you know, it was people behave differently than they do now. And, and uh, certainly there were, there's a different uh, approach to society and the, and the almost a case system as it were. And then that's on display in this film. And uh, it, it, but it, it's so hard to, to take it at face value uh, in a film like this. Uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's also the film that kind of ended the friendship between Rutger Hauer and Paul Verhoeven. They clashed, because he, uh, you know, his character is pretty nasty. You know, we, we think he's the hero at first, and then, of course, we learn that he's not. And uh, that was, you know, he did not enjoy playing this character. And, and uh, they they didn't speak until, I don't know, the last decade or so uh, prior to Rucker Howard's death, which is unfortunate. But uh, I can see why he would have issues with this character here. Yeah, for sure. Now, Verhoeven, of course, would go on to make RoboCop in 1987. That's the satiric classic about the militarization of police in a future Detroit. Uh, it feels a little bit prophetic these days, to tell you the truth, in a very sad and scary sort of way. But RoboCop, uh, of course, it's a classic. It has been remade in a version which I didn't hate, but it had none of the bite and satiric humor that uh, the original had. I mean, if you haven't seen RoboCop, really, there's there's nothing to be said. You just got to go out and see it. Yeah, I'm surprised that someone hasn't been able to do something really worthwhile with this property. And because uh, there were two sequels initially, um, one of them was even written by Frank Miller. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the second one. Sure. And uh, it was not very good in RoboCop 3. I can't even remember if I saw it or not. I think I might have, but it was just so unmemorable that nothing is coming to mind from that. And then then there was a remake, which I also didn't see because I was the point. And uh, apparently I didn't miss much. And I think there might have even been like a limited TV series of some description. And why not? But, but uh, without... Uh, Without that kind of double-edged sword of satire uh, it, driving it, it, it really doesn't make any – it's just another violent, uh, you know, robot movie kind of thing. And Peter Weller, you know, is, is so great as, as, um, as both the, the, the human officer and, uh, and as the RoboCop and then, you know, kind of discovering whatever shred of humanity he has left thanks to Nancy Allen, his former partner. Uh, and – the original just works so well and plays so well today um, and is, as you, as you say, is so prophetic that uh, that really it's the only Robocop you need. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's funny you talk about why people haven't done something well, like, you know, reimagining it or extending it. Um, and it's something to do with Verhoeven's particular gift and his 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 particular perspective, that that edge between exploitation and and satire that we see again and again in his films. It's very hard to do. Uh, and when he does it well, it's spectacular. Uh, he also made Total Recall, which uh, an adaptation of the Philip K. Dick story we can remember it uh, for you wholesale in which Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a regular working class guy in the future who takes a virtual vacation in which he's a super spy, but then starts to think maybe his real life 
uh, and the regular guy life has been implanted in his memories to throw him off from from his actual mission in fighting a Martian dictator. It's dark, it's violent, it's a whole lot of fun, and it as well has been remade to somewhat disappointing, uh, you know, results. Yeah, again, completely unmemorable compared to all the great moments in the original Total Recall. Uh, having Dan O'Bannon, uh, you know, one of the minds behind Alien on board as, as one of the screenwriters probably doesn't hurt uh, to, to get Philip K. Dick uh, onto the screen in a comprehensive and and uh, entertaining way. And and this, yeah, there's just so much imagination in this version of the, of the, of the film. And there's uh lots of great special effects where it's it's of course it's it's not cgi it's a lot of practical effects miniatures and stop motion and makeup and and uh, you know just a, a real fest for people who enjoy seeing that kind of craftsmanship in terms of uh creating a world using uh, you know actual physical creations and uh and sets and so on and, and make up the, the the uh you know the the trip to the mutant bar you know it certainly has so many memorable moments in it as well and and some great villains michael ironside is is always welcome as a as a an evil presence and he's great here and of course uh, ronnie cox from robocop is back as cohagen the guy who's trying to keep the mining concern on mars going and and he's fantastic he always plays a great villain and and it's fun to have him here as well and 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 Arnold just goes for it. I mean, there's it's it's I, I try to remember if it's R rated. I mean, he drops f bombs. Oh, it is. It's yeah. exceedingly violent in a way that uh, he would not be making films not too long after this. So yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, and it's something about I wanted to mention about Verhoeven's Hollywood movies, with the exception of Basic Instinct, which was shot by Jan de Bont, who would go on to be a filmmaker. Uh, you know, directed Speed. Um, they were all shot by German DP Jost Vacano, who has a very distinct look. I gotta say, it's actually kind of ugly. Everything seems overlit, especially the interiors. He's not a fan of shadow at all. I mean, you think about the interiors and in Mars and Total Recall or the training sessions on Starship Troopers. Uh, it all looks like a big set, which uh, while I'm a fan of what Verhoeven does, I, I don't think that these movies look terribly good looking back at them. Uh, however, Basic Instinct, which does look good, is not a good movie, and I just can't really recommend it at all. It's from 1992, from the Joe Esterhouse script. It was a movie that came out. Everyone had to see it because everyone needed to have an opinion about what it was about and how it worked. But watching it now, it just it feels like a Hitchcock-influenced thriller. It's about a cop played by Michael Douglas with a lot of personal problems who becomes obsessed with an author, Sharon Stone, who might be a murderer. It's very slick. It's, it is gorgeous to look at, um, stylish, but emotionally chilly and deeply unpleasant. This is a film that earned Verhoeven accusations of being um, uh, queerphobic or homophobic and uh, and misogynist. And it's, yeah, it's it's a really tough film. I actually tried watching it again for this chat and I couldn't even get through it. I thought it was, there were just stuck scenes there where I was just like, I don't, I don't need to watch this. Yeah, it's not a film I wanted to return to and I didn't because, <laughs> you know, I didn't like it the first time I saw it. It was, it's, it's just kind of a... It, it's sort of ugly and mean-spirited without the sense, you know, that's usually balanced by the kind of sense of fun that Verhoeven kind of brings to his projects. And that uh, that was sorely lacking here. Uh, and of course, but of course it kicked off a whole genre of, you know, erotic thrillers uh, that was, you know, of the completely forgettable films that just, uh, you know, basically became a direct-to-video staple uh, in, the, in the 1990s. And 
you know, I was never that big a Michael Douglas fan either, so that doesn't help. But yeah, uh, and uh, Esther Hauser just seems like a guy who's mad at the world. <laughs> you know, he gets the you know sells his it made a lot of ink for selling his screenplays for millions and millions of dollars, and yet so full of anger and misanthropy. It's uh, it's yeah, it's it's pretty hard to swallow. Yeah. So, uh, well, you know, we've talked a lot about Starship Troopers on this show on different episodes. We're not going to talk about that today, but but Showgirls from 1995 did have a lot of fun in it. Uh, a story about a young woman who goes to Las Vegas in order to make it big as a dancer. It's a bit of all about Eve with a lot of camp and nudity. And there was a documentary recently about it called You Don't Know Me, which uh, basically tries to frame the film as kind of this camp classic uh steven you just watched that didn't you i did uh yeah showgirls is not a good film but it's it's you know it's kind of the epitome of the train wreck you can't take your eyes off of it's it's every scene has something about it whether it's you know elizabeth uh elizabeth berkeley's over the top performance which verhoven has come out and said that that's what he directed her to do like everything she does in the film it, he takes the blame for it i don't know if it's because he feels bad for her but I, I have a feeling that's I think he's speaking the truth when he says that he just wanted to, you know, have her deliver every line reading like she's just biting down hard on on something, and it's uh, and and it's just uh, you know it's over the top portrayal of Vegas glitz and glamour, and uh, it you know you can't take your eyes off of it. It's it's Esther Howe's script again, and and clear and his. I don't think he has any love for any of these characters um, at all. But but again, it's it's one of those films because it's just so jaw droppingly watchable uh, that it has attained that kind of camp classic status. Yeah. Now the final film we're going to talk about as we wrap up our look at the films of Paul Verhoeven, it's Hollow Man, and uh, it was not well received. It was from 2000. It's basically a fresh take on the Invisible Man story. And uh, it's uh, with added Hitchcock touches, leaning heavily on the voyeurism. Kevin Bacon is Sebastian Crane. He, or sorry, Kane. He's a scientist who's working with part of a team experimenting on animals in a basement lab, turning them invisible, phase shifting from the visible spectrum, as they describe it. The trouble is trying to turn them back, which they finally do with a gorilla. Now, um, Kane, uh, Bacon's character is deeply arrogant in a way you don't often see in a lead of a science fiction picture, which is actually interesting. And and there's also a love triangle. Sebastian's ex, Linda, played by Elizabeth Shue, she's working on the project and she's secretly dating another team member, Matt, played by a very fresh-faced Josh Brolin. And I really like that dynamic. You're not really sure if Linda might go back with Sebastian. He's charismatic, he's ambitious, uh, but he's entirely a jerk. And, and he's comfortably comfortable overstepping boundaries. I mean, these guys we know exist everywhere, and and it's interesting to see them see him in this kind of a of a of a film. And the the, the effects after twenty years are impressive. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of Cronenberg's The Fly, maybe absent the pathos and tragedy. Um, and I did appreciate what Verhoeven's doing, exploring voyeurism, putting us in the position of someone without excuses who complete feels completely entitled. It's almost like a superhero villain origin story and i did enjoy that better than the joker at least because we're not expected to like or sympathize with the guy um but yeah i mean what did you think of that steven yeah it's you know it's it's a good brisk programmer with a really good cast um but but the script is is really subpar there's some terrible dialogue (laughs) um the scenario is pretty cut and dried when it just becomes the the cat and mouse game in the underground the sort of ludicrous underground lab uh 
you know, obviously it's 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 going back to H.G. Wells' themes of, of power and madness, and but it doesn't help that that Kevin Bacon is unlikable from the get go. So you know when he it's no shock when he becomes even worse uh, once he has the power of invisibility. It would have been nice if maybe he hadn't been such a creep to begin with, but I I guess maybe they're implying that just the creepiness just gets amplified by the invisibility, and it, it's not that interesting of a transition. Yeah, that's fair, I guess. I, I didn't mind it. Um, I, I like that Verhoeven can't help but make us as the viewers complicit in his behavior. If you knew you could, I guess the question is, if you knew you could get away with it, how far would you go with this kind of power? Uh, of course, in a weird way, it's a criticism of the male gaze while it indulges in the male gaze. You can't have it both ways, but that's what Verhoeven wants. And that's what he often wants in his film. He wants things both ways. <laughs> that's all for this edition of Lens Me Your Ears. Hope you enjoyed this trip through the filmography of Paul Verhoeven for all its ups and, and some downs over the course of the past uh, 40 years, but but uh, very rarely boring. Uh, you can find the show online with a Twitter account at Lens Me Your Ears and also a Facebook page. And I'm on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Uh, yeah, and you can find me, Karsten Knox, uh, uh, on Twitter, but by the name of my blog, Flaw in the Iris, uh, which is, the blog is on halifaxbloggers.ca. Thanks again to CKDU for the use of the studios and airing the show every other Tuesday at 5 p.m. Atlantic time, and also to the Village Soundcast Network for making us sound great and getting us up on the podcast platforms. Thanks, and see you next time. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.